Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and today I have the privilege of beginning the series on the miracles of Jesus, looking at the wedding at Cana. Let's begin. Well, if you would turn with me to John chapter 2. So thank you, Phil and Vicki, for leading us in worship. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we have entered your presence by your grace, the privilege of being here with you and with our brothers and sisters, the marvel of the technologies that allow us to gather even when we're not physically together. Thank you, Father. Now we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts, that you would help us to truly hear your word. Father, let nothing but your word be spoken or heard, for we ask it in the precious name of the living word, Our Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's read the first 11 verses together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The first century Jewish wedding was an interesting event and dramatically different from typical 21st century North American weddings. Such marriages were usually arranged by the parents uh, when their offspring were usually young children. And the period from the beginning of the parental arrangements to the actual wedding might span a period of 10 years or more. When both parties were finally of marriageable age, 
there was the betrothal, when they shared a cup of wine indicating their mutual acceptance of the previous parental arrangements. At this point, there was a legally binding covenant between them. A covenant that is far more binding than our engagement period. Although the, the couple were still not living together. Now this was the situation between Joseph and Mary when Mary was discovered to be pregnant. And that's why Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Note the word, divorce. Anyway, for the next year or so, after the betrothal, the groom would be involved in the construction of their home, which would typically be some sort of like a, an apartment built onto his parents' home, especially if the groom were the firstborn. And during this period, the bride was also preparing, creating her wedding garments and other items that would be required for their new home. The betrothal period would come to an end only when the groom's father gave his approval to the construction of this new place. Now that would typically take about a year, give or take. And at that point, the groom would then travel to the bride's home to take her to his new home. And there would not be a formal announcement of the of the groom's coming until he was almost at the bride's door. And that's the context of the parable of the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom. The virgins were the bride's friends. The groom was coming to claim his bride. And this is also the period to which Jesus referred to in his talk with the disciples on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. Uh, John recorded in chapter 14, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus, the divine groom, is preparing a place for us, his bride. And when the Father indicates that the time is right, he will come to take us to himself. And what a glorious day that will be. In a 
typical first century Jewish wedding, when the groom finally brings his bride home, there is a party. A party hosted by the groom. Not by the bride's parents, but by the groom. A party that typically would include the whole community and certainly the whole extended family. Now this party would, again, typically last five to seven days. But can you imagine what the party is going to be like when Jesus brings us home? Revelation 19, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, John chapter 2 indicates that it was a wedding party um, like this that Jesus brought his disciples to, you know, if you read the first chapter of John's gospel, it would seem that there are only four, maybe five disciples at this point. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now we're not quite sure why Mary was at the wedding. Was she a a friend of the groom's family? Or... Was the wedding perhaps for one of the sisters of Jesus? We simply don't know. But in any case, Mary seems to have been involved in the arrangements for the event, which is why she was aware of the wine crisis before anyone else. And it seems that as soon as she was aware, she went to Jesus, apparently expecting him to do something about it. Now, a lack of food or drink at a wedding was a serious issue and would reflect badly on the groom to his shame. Such a circumstance would become the stuff of ridicule in the public square for years to come. That's the situation. Jesus' response Seems harsh when translated into English. One thing to remember though, that even when he was on the cross, 
and Jesus was making arrangements for the care of his mother. He did not refer to her as mother, mom, or even by her first name. He simply referred to her as woman. Some translators suggest that in that society, when the word is used in this kind of a context, it might be better translated something like, and we just don't have a a really good English translation, but something like lady as a term of respect and endearment. What Jesus said after he addressed his mother is really hard to translate. Literally, the words are, what to me and to you? And that doesn't even make sense at all. But that was a phrase commonly used in both Hebrew and Greek to indicate that there was nothing of concern to be discussed. Today, Jesus might have said, so? Or, so what? But Jesus is carefully and gently telling Mary that as his mother she no longer has any authority over him. That from that moment, if not before, he was submissive only to God the Father and determined to do only what he directed. And his hour, his time, had not yet come. Now, at the risk of reading into Scripture, we might speculate on Mary's expectations here. Was she suggesting that this would be a good time for Jesus to openly declare to the world that he is the Messiah? That he should do something showy so that everyone would have to sit up and take notice of her son? But even with the gentle rebuff from Jesus, Mary remained confident that somehow he would do something to fix the problem. And Mary just turns to the servants and said, just do whatever he tells you. Confronted with a need. No, it's not a life and death need, but it's a need nonetheless. Confronted with a need, Mary went to Jesus. And we should follow her example. When we have a need, we should be coming to Jesus. We must come knowing, recognizing, that everything is in his hands 
And he will determine when and why and how he responds to our concerns. Certainly we can express our desires and call upon Jesus in faith. But in the end, we have to put all things in his hands. As Mary did, we have to be willing to accept his decisions and actions knowing that he has the wisdom to know and the power to do what is best. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, when we read the scripture here, it, it sound, seems like Jesus immediately spoke to the servants. But he had said, My hour has not yet come. And I'm reminded of a parallel exchange between Jesus and his unbelieving brothers a few months later. John 7 uh, is recorded. Now, the Jews' uh, Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Now listen to this. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. For Jesus, timing was and is critical. Even a few minutes might make a significant difference in outcome and perception. So at the wedding, after the exchange between Mary and Jesus, I expect that there was a bit of silence, with Jesus apparently doing nothing. Might have been a few minutes. Maybe it was an hour. I don't know. Likely he was waiting for the right combination of people to be in the right locations before he set to work. I mean, after all, the servants needed to be there, as well as his disciples, but probably not many others. Our son Graham once observed that answers to prayer are something like traffic lights. Sometimes we get a green light and God answers positively and immediately. 
Sometimes we get an amber. And God says, in effect, yes, but wait a while. And sometimes we get a red light when God answers, no, my child. At that point, we need to be praising him for his wisdom because he's saving us from less than his best. So when we ask the Lord to do something, we may sometimes get an amber light and need to wait like Mary did. Wait even without any confirmation that he's actually heard us and is at work. Partly, this period is to test and to strengthen our trust and faith. And partly, it's simply a matter of him putting into place all the pieces so that the answer to our prayer will be for the best. And when Jesus acted, he did the unexpected. He simply asked the servants to fill the water jars. That was all. There's no hand-waving, no apparent fervent prayer, no visible actions at all. Just fill the jars. And the next instructions might have been difficult for the servants. Now put yourself in the place of the servant. Jesus said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. I can imagine them thinking in absolute disbelief. I know Mary said to do whatever Jesus said, but surely he can't be serious. Are we to serve this water to the master of the feast? When he finds out it's only water and not wine, he'll have our jobs. And if he finds out where this water came from, we're in really big trouble. But to their credit, there was no indication that they resisted Jesus' instructions or that they debated with him. They just did what he told them to do. Now, the master of the feast, the head steward, had no idea where his drink had come from, but the servants knew. And the suspense of those seconds between the time when the head steward drank the wine and the time he responded I can imagine it was sheer torture for the servants. Can you imagine? The head steward sniffs the cup. And then he takes a sip. And then he calls the bridegroom. What was he about to say? The scenarios that played in the heads of the servants would make some really interesting reading. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Again, we're not told what the bridegroom said. He evidently didn't have anything to say and must have been bewildered at the event. 
like the servants. But at least from John's record, it seems that he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut and to take credit for the whole thing. So that's the incident. But as we were observing earlier, John's gospel can be understood in several levels. There's the the surface story, and then there's its significance. Now, although I've never attended an AA or Al-Anon meeting, I can't imagine that this story would gain much traction in those circles because of the all-too-common abuse of alcohol. But in this first-century society, and throughout the Old Testament, and especially at a wedding, wine was a symbol of joy and gladness. And Jesus supplied an abundance of wine, something like 150 gallons of it. Can you imagine being the young couple and having perhaps 75 or 100 gallons of fine wine left over? Far from being shamed because of lack, they would have become the talk of the town. So I think that John captured this event for us to underline the joy that Jesus brings to a person who receives the redemption that he came to provide us. When we come to know the Lord God, there is joy in great abundance. Jesus himself said on the eve of his crucifixion, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. And then, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, clearly it's not to say that a disciple of Jesus will never experience tough times. Our persecuted church underlines the tough times that our brothers and sisters around the world experience. If we haven't, we soon will experience tough times in one form or another. Almost the last thing that Jesus said to his closest friends before his crucifixion was, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I love him all the more because he did not hide that fine print. He fairly warned us of the cost of discipleship. Yet even in the middle of sorrow and grief and trouble of various kinds, there is cause for joy and celebration.
John 2 and verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Question. What is a sign? Dictionary.com defines sign as something that indicates or acts of a token uh, of a fact, a condition, etc., that is not immediately or outwardly observable. So when something is referred to as a sign, it's pointing to a fact or condition that is not immediately observable. Some of the most obvious Examples are road signs, traffic signs. They provide indications of uh, road road conditions before we get there, of speed limits, uh, of, of direction, showing us where we need to turn to get to where we intend to go. When John refers to Jesus' actions as signs, He intends for us to read them as indications of who and what Jesus is. But have you ever failed to see a sign? Come on, you've been driving down the road and you don't notice the change in speed limit. Oops. Or you pass right by your turn because you didn't see the sign From this miracle, what might we deduce about Jesus? Well, turning water into wine isn't exactly the sort of thing that happens every day. Only God could do that. So one thing we might deduce about Jesus from this is that he is God. And that he has the necessary power to do what he says. We might also deduce that he is the Messiah from the circumstance of this event. But, let's face it, his disciples saw what happened and believed. What about the servants? Where were they? How come they didn't get it? Well, just like driving on the road, if your attention is not there, you won't see it. If you're expecting something different, you may not see it even though it's right in front of you. What does it mean that Jesus manifested his glory? I suspect that many of us have a distorted view of glory. We kind of expect that the glory of God is manifested in dramatic display of power, in the visible and spectacular events that are seen and acknowledged by everyone. But go back a chapter. 
John clearly says of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Now, that's a dramatic event. And yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only the disciples saw his glory here in Cana. The servants who had carried the water and the water made wine seemed to be silently dumbfounded and simply not comprehending what they had just seen and didn't recognize or receive Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't get it. They didn't see the sign. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said uh, in John 17 and verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus revealed his glory and glorified his Father by his obedience. The miracles of Jesus are never simply naked displays of power. And still less are they neat conjuring uh, tricks to impress the masses. But they are signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that can only be perceived by the eye of faith. Jesus himself in this gospel refers to his miracles and to his other activities as his work, his works. They are evidence of his divinity, of his role as Messiah. They're evidence. They're not proofs in the, in the normal sense, but they're evidence to the eye of faith. So here at Cana, Jesus revealed his glory by his careful obedience to the Father. And his disciples believed in him. They were learning to trust him, to believe that he is who he says he is. So the question of the day, do you get it? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Redeemer? Is he your heavenly bridegroom? And are you eagerly awaiting his return for you? We've all been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But have you returned the RSVP yet? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We praise you. And yes, Lord, we would bring you glory 
and honor. You have done so, so much for us in Jesus. You have revealed yourself to us. And we thank you, Father. Thank you for the eye of faith to see something of what you have done, who you are, something of the promises that you have given to us. Lord, of all those who are here or part of the online audience, Lord, let there be none who do not respond to you in faith. Bring us to yourself, Father, and Lord, we pray that you would bring our bridegroom here soon. We thank you for all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.